You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and putting the world to rights. The podcast that is historian therapy. I'm public historian Paul Bavel and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host and fellow historian Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week we've got a very learned guest joining us with quite a lot of job titles. So ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to welcome best-selling author Ambassador for the National Centre for Military Intelligence, President of the Friends of the National Archive, and Honorary Member of the Association for Jewish Refugees, Dr. Helen Fry. Welcome to History Rage, Helen. Thank you for having me. So I know you via your book about MI9, an excellent book, but for our listeners to whom you are new, tell us and them a, a bit about yourself, a bit about the work of your range of organisations and your career. So I'm a military historian for probably something like over 20 years and I fell into this quite accidentally. So I've been researching the 10,000 Germans who fought for Britain and that often raises an eyebrow. Just mine, 10, just 000, then. Yeah, <laughs> around 90% of them of course were Jewish refugees and very quickly you realise that by the middle of the war they're taken up for special duties. Yeah. And so I started to follow their trail having thought I would only write one book about their story because no one was telling their stories. And of course, they're doing all kinds of intelligence stuff, stuff behind enemy lines that just got me hooked. So that's what I've been doing. And so I then accidentally fell into intelligence and military intelligence, spies, espionage. And now I'm hooked. Absolutely hooked. I love it. I love the detective work, the research, piecing together the stories. And in terms of my roles, I'm, as you said, an ambassador for the Museum for Military Intelligence, which is going to be a big national museum coming in a couple of years' time. We'll be called the National Centre for Military Intelligence. So that's very, very exciting to tell all those MI stories, military intelligence from MI1 to MI19. And then, yeah, I do other voluntary work as well. So um, tell us a little bit more about the Association for Jewish Refugees and how you got involved with those. It's very interesting that I'm not... 
Jewish mm-hmm. and I'm not of a refugee background, or at least my ancestors that came in as refugees around 500 years ago. So that probably doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. I think they're looking um, for something a bit more modern than that. A bit, but well, normally it's, of course, sort of the link to the Holocaust. But because of my research and working with veterans who survived the Holocaust, the association have made me an honorary member. So I've been involved with them for about 25 years. Yeah. And it's a very special organisation close to my heart. So they have supported survivors, refugees from Nazi oppression. Of course, with the passing of that generation, they're also supporting and doing work with second generation. So the children and then, of course, the third generation grandchildren and keeping these stories alive. Yeah. And then I'm also proud to be president of the Friends of the National Archives because I absolutely love working at the National Archives at Kew. It's such a, a gem. You just don't know what you're going to find. And I think it's you know got such an international reputation amongst historians and scholars. Um, absolutely fabulous place to be working. So I enjoy my research days there. Yeah, Kyle was telling me, um, and you might want to come in here, Kyle, yeah. about the just sheer randomness of what you might get when you book one of those research days. You've got no idea if you're going to get a <laughs> box full of important documents or just one letter scrawled on a handkerchief. Yeah, complete hit and miss. It could be page after page of just nothing or just one diamond piece of information that makes it all worthwhile yeah and when you find that thing that nobody else is looking at i can't imagine there's a better feeling for a historian researcher or archivist out there well i have been tempted you know to get to to... (laughs) whoa it's like (laughs) you know the archive room is so quiet the reading room but there have been times when I've been like suppressing a scream because I've discovered something that's, that's <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, that changes some kind of understanding. And that happened with the MI9 book, but um, now might not be the place to, to talk about that. Well, actually, yeah, I've got, I'll have a question that's coming around the, uh, the MI9 book and, and new and uncovered information a little bit later on. But let's get down to sort of brass tacks of, uh, of what we're about here at History Rage. So, so Dr. Fry, please. We'd be very grateful if you would tell us just what you wish people would just stop believing, stop doing, or just get over. Please go. Well, I'm not very good at ranting and raving, but I do have a particular rant about Nazis. Okay. And when I say Nazis, I mean the spelling. It drives me nuts, almost <laughs> with, to a T. Everybody puts an apostrophe in Nazis, and I've never, ever been in a scenario where you use nazis with an apostrophe so please stop doing it but you aren't going to want to talk <laughs> okay. about just, that are you 45 minutes am i right in thinking that you are actually a grammar nazi about the word nazis well i am i'm not normally, <laughs> normally a grammar nazi but this winds me up every time i see it i go into a complete it does something kind of almost shake it like no and actually, I've even given scripts and stuff to people with Nazis with no apostrophe. And it's come back with their added stuff and they put an apostrophe in. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's probably even more of a crime. But that's not my main rage, though. It's not my yeah, main rage. Yeah, I can't talk for 45 minutes on that, even if uh, even if you could. And we are history rage. We are not punctuation rage. Yeah. Okay, so so yeah, what what historical thing do you wish people would just get past? 
well, I kind of want to be sensitive too, so I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. But if I'm going to have a rage, it's really about what what we the stories we tell about the Second World War, and I think it has to be about SOE. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean those brave agents. Of course, nobody denies that, but there's so much stuff on SOE, but there are other stories, and you know this constant focus on SOE agents, particularly the women, drives me completely nuts. And that's not to undermine their bravery, their heroism. But I think we need to look beyond that. And the other thing linked to SOE is this whole notion about them being spies. Right. Well, Well, I've done a deep dive into some of this research. And I don't know, I still still want to say that SOE was not a spying organisation. They may have transferred intelligence at points, they may have picked up and been debriefed, but they are not a spying organisation. They're into sabotage. Yeah. They're blowing mm. stuff up. Yeah, that's not special too- operations. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Have I done yeah. too much of a rage? No, going. Going for the <laughs> no, no it's, this is what history rage is all about. And, uh, and I'm come, coming in broadly to agree with you here, because you think the underlying phrase of special operations executive is set Europe ablaze, which doesn't really suggest that you're going to be slipping quietly through Lisbon to uh, see what the adverb are up to. Yeah. Well, that was the problem. I mean, they could actually compromise some of the SIS slash MI6 operations. They could compromise the MI9 operations if they got to. Because, I mean, those are the organizations. Well, MI, yeah. military intelligence. They're not the only ones involved in intelligence. Of course, you've got the naval intelligence. stuff. You've got a whole raft of stuff. And yes, of course, we should tell the stories of those SOE agents. And my gosh, could I have done what they did? I don't know, unless one's in that situation. But can I make an appeal to historians to look at some of the other agents who were dropped behind enemy lines? Yeah. And they did not work for SOE. <laughs> so, so why do you think this idea almost permanently persists then you know soe and bletchley park you know hog all the limelight to the detriment of pretty much every other form of wartime intelligence i mean like you said it goes from mi1 to mi19 i appreciate there are a couple of fake ones in there so that the germans think that we've got more than they have but but there are at least you know a good 16 17 intelligence branches there yeah and we really only know about probably four of them if you're in the trade, really. Yeah, and again, it's about the devil's in the detail. It's pulling the files. It's working through volumes and volumes of of intelligence, of files at the National Archives. But, of course, with Bletchley Park and, to a larger degree, with SOE, although the files are still coming out with SOE, so we get an understanding of what, you know, thousands of agents did, those stories have been declassified much, much earlier. So in all fairness to them, and that's quite right, we should understand those stories, but we need to move on and we need to start looking at the other stories that will transform our understanding of the Second World War. Yeah. 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 So so I think there is it's it is just that there's more out there and not necessarily that you know soe looks cooler because it blows up trains um you know it's got 28 year old women with sten guns why do they just keep coming back and back and back when you know you you only have to read i'm currently reading ben mcintyre's agent zigzag and oh, you know there, there was a guy 
well, I, in fact, I'm I'm probably two thirds of the way through the book and I've still not entirely worked out whose side he's on. But his story is utterly fascinating. <laughs> his own, probably. Yet, you probably, yes. Yeah, I know that's the fascination, isn't it? But yeah, it's way but more it's... interesting than the, than anything uh, SOE did. It's way more interesting than anything Bletchley Park did. They'll played their bit, but you know, in terms of an actual rip snorting, riveting story, which is zigzags right out front for me. I suppose it's about heroes and heroines, isn't it? And isn't it about finding a kind of male or female James Bond, which, you know, and the bravery and the heroism. But, and that's fine. I think those stories are established and we're not undermining those. But we need to look at the other pictures of those that helped with the, with the war effort, and in particular the intelligence war. And I think in terms of Bletchley Park, it's time to start diving further into the archives and not just, and this is something which David Kenyon's done with D-Day, he's looked at the impact of Bletchley Park on D-Day that no one had done before. Mm. It was all the early stuff about the code breaking. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more to Station X than the, than Colossus and uh, and Crossword enthusiasts, isn't there? Yes, but of course, with both of both Station X, Bletchley Park, and SOE, it's made history accessible and enjoyable for people, hasn't it? So it's a start. But I think we mustn't get stuck in those stories and keep churning out mm. variations mm. of the same story. Yeah, I suppose it's given as well, uh, given the prevalence of women at Bletchley Park and the women in SOE. I know Kate Vigas has just brought out another book on the on the women of SOE. But it does yeah, give um, yeah. it, it does give our young girls, our young ladies, heroine figures to to look up to and to be interested in. You know, from what I see of a lot of intelligence work, it isn't James Bond; it's archives, which I, as a historian, love. But actual historian, anybody that I've met that's been involved in the intelligence community has always told me that actual espionage work is really dull. Yeah, it's noteworthy that not only does he use his real name, James Bond isn't really a spy, is he? He's, a, he's an assassin. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's, intelligence isn't like that. Well, uh, or is oh, well, it? Or is it? You... <laughs> well, that's the point. What I have noticed is that when you dive into the National Archives, well, the MI9 files, for example, take the Q gadgets. Mm. Fleming hasn't invented this stuff. Well, okay, mm. it's developed way beyond that. But I, I was amazed to find that some of this stuff is in the military intelligence files, that he's drawn on stuff that actually happened. And you think about the women, MI9 and Naval Intelligence were the first to use female interrogators. Really? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And I discovered that and thought, oh, wow. And apparently it was all about psychology that completely destabilized the German prisoners. They couldn't cope with the female interrogator. <laughs> to be fair, they just love that. I, I do, because, you know, I, I'm now, I've now got a head full of. Uh, these ladies who are no doubt quite capable of remembering what that guy said seven years ago, I couldn't argue with but that. Didn't that take? Didn't that take courage though to to go into that interrogation room and face those Nazis without the? <laughs> yeah, literally face to face with the SS. Yeah, these hardened yeah you've criminal, got to, war yeah. criminals. Yeah, I mean, this takes it's a different kind of courage. And they are contributing to the war effort in a different kind of way, of course. But these are the kind of stories we have to start recovering. Yeah. We have to find them first. We have to find, and our historians have to start really going deep diving into some of those other files. And I think largely they are now. And that I'm really encouraged by because it's exciting when you start 
piecing these new stories together. Yeah. Really, and the public just are enthralled by this new aspects of the secret war. They can't get enough of it. And I think that's it. It's the whole secrecy, a little bit of bond thrown in there. Yeah, a little bit of gadgetry. I mean, I've, well, thanks to your recommendation now, I've got to book myself into queue and go through all the MI9 bulletins, (laughs) looking for any evidence of mustard being smeared on shoes. That's how interesting things get here, guys. Yeah, but look, you might find it. Yeah, and when I I will, I'll be just very happy that what I've been talking about for the past 10 years actually is verifiable, as opposed to just me talking to other historians and going, yeah, yeah, it was definitely definitely mustard, Yeah. yeah, definitely. Oh, but you know what else they used to do? They used to put itching powder in the German uniforms. Yeah, I had heard that <laughs> as well. It's probably in the same file. I can't remember where I saw that now. But yeah, we were up to all sorts of... Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, I mean, MI9 will we'll come to her, but uh, yeah, it's so much more interesting than anything MI5 or MI6 get up to. Okay, so this is sort of a follow-on. So how did this come to be? How did SOE go from being this clandestine, top-secret, eyes-only, paramilitary organisation to being like this really well-known, the go-to action-adventure people? Well, I suppose film and drama Mm. have had a lot to do with that, hasn't it? So somebody's decided, you know, the files can be released, historians start working on it, film directors think, yes, we can take this and develop it further. And, of course, there's the film Charlotte Grey, and well, probably well over a decade ago now, um, and again, you know, it's those kind of stories which people, the public enjoy, those big blockbusters. And it's it's not dissimilar to the female spies behind enemy lines in World War One. Mm. You know, take Mata Hari. I mean, I was working on her files recently. You've got a, a mini mm. rank coming now. Everybody completely blows it out of proportion. And I'd never looked at her stuff before. And I now realise she wasn't working for us. She was working for the other side. And she is given, you know, she's propelled way up there as a superhero or superheroine. What's all that about? Yeah. And again, that was propelled by the film industry, you know, sexing up the whole kind of thing with spies and a sexy woman. And so I think that's largely what's behind it. Uh, Hollywood does like a honey trap, don't they? (laughs) Well, we've got plenty of those, haven't we? <laughs> well, for me, um, for me, it was the TV series Wish Me Luck that tipped me off for uh, SOE. I, I hadn't really dealt with them uh, prior to that. Hmm. Uh, it was uh-huh. possibly me having a thing for Jane Asher. This has led me further down that road, but there you go. Is it just a case of SOE getting in early? Uh, they had they, the first ones to write their memoirs and get them published. I'm thinking in particular of Ill Met by Moonlight, which is sort of my area of expertise. And he wrote, the guy who wrote that, wrote it before the war was even over. So he was obviously rushing to get his story out. Yeah. Does, that, does that help? Potentially, that's the kidnapping of Kripa, is, yes. isn't it, General Kripa? It is, yes. Ah, he ends up at one, yeah, he ends up at one of see, my see, sites. See, it all links nobody, in. It links in, but nobody who's written on SOE, who's written on that mission, ever spotted what happened to Kripa. Mm, yeah. What happened to him when after, oh, I don't know. Oh, he ends up at a secret site in the UK. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Follow the <Yep>. leads. <laughs> but no one was interested in that part. But his interrogation and his bug conversations are really interesting because he talks about the kidnap. That's his perspective. It's and, fascinating. And these are in queue. Yes, right. in the National Archives. Right, thanks. Thank you very much. I'll see you all later. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> right, now we've got both of you going into queue now. Of course, and your work yes. as an ambassador there is done, isn't it? 
Excellent. Um, so yeah, Jeff, we go go <laughs> yes, back to the, uh, the the question I was thinking. Thanks, Carl. Yeah. So let's take some of the glory back from SOE then. If you can, Helen, based on all the knowledge that you've gathered so far, tell us about the wartime espionage operation that you feel really needs a filmmaking about it. It's got to be the whole eavesdropping bugging of Hitler's generals of 10,000, not, you don't have to do a film on all 10,000, but the 10,000 German prisoners of war, Italians as well. And this, I told him, the walls have ears. Yeah. And it is subtitled The Greatest Intelligence Operation of the Second World War. And I absolutely believe that to be true. This started at the outbreak of war in the Tower of London, of all places in the Tower of London, and then very quickly is ramped up and at the head of it, is Thomas Joseph Kendrick. And without any blueprint, he sets up this tri-services, so Army, Air, Naval Intelligence, Operation, and later the Americans, that eavesdrops on, on prisoners of war, believing that your prisoners are one of your most valuable sources of intelligence. Mm. And you can't rough them up in interrogation. You're not going to get anything reliable, and it's against the Geneva mm -hmm. Convention. You've got to be far cleverer. So he organised for microphones to be embedded everywhere walls uh, light fittings fireplaces that kind of thing and at trent park in north london even the billiards table the plant pots everything was bugged and that's how we gained intelligence that i show in my book turned the tide of the war and the one point if no one takes anything else away from this today the one point i want to make is that Apart from the fact, yes, let's have a film. If any historian is writing anything on the Second World War, they need to look at these bugged conversations. Yeah. And I'll give you one example. The Dieppe Raid. I have yet to see a single book on the Dieppe Raid that looks what happened to the four that we snatched during the failed Dieppe Raid. They ended up at Kendrick sites and they gave us intelligence. No one has looked at it. There are eyewitness accounts of, of the Dieppe Raid. From, okay, from the other side, there are eyewitness accounts of D-Day, etc., etc. There's intelligence stuff. So every campaign, including the Ardennes, are covered by the whole bugging operation. It's immense, apart from winning the intelligence war alongside Bletchley Park, RF Mebnum, the aerial stuff. Yeah. This was non-negotiable for the outcome of the war. Without these well, three sites, Latimer House, Wilson Park and Trent Park, without those, I make a very strong argument. And I was told behind the scenes, without those sites and Bletchley Park, we would have lost the war as late as February 1945. Really? Germany... Yep, Germany would have lost the tech war. For all the progress we'd made, we were picking up stuff on Hitler's atomic bomb program, on the V program, the V weapons. Without those sites, we would not have bombed Pinimunda in time. And I've uncovered all kinds of stuff and intelligence which prepared us ahead of the Cold War. And this, this is so significant that I would like historians to start working on these files and really, we're getting the story out there gradually in the yeah. public domain, but huge, huge legacy. That's it. That sounds astonishing. So, so all of that stuff about the their version of the Manhattan Project, the their working to the atomic bomb, all their rocket technology, the all the yeah, V two sites, yeah. you know, all, all these prisoners are in their respective camps, rooms, places, just talking about talking about home and the entirety of the time we are we are listening in 
yeah, we're picking up stuff. Of course, it's no good if they're just talking about their home life and their wives and how they're missing their families. That's not the stuff we need to know. We, of course, need to know, well, particularly from Hitler's top commanders, Mm -hmm. we need the intelligence. And they're not going to give it an interrogation. Just forget it, even if we're nice to them. Um, You know, nice little comfy chat. Basically, we wined and dined them, as you will have read, Paul, because I know you've read my book. (laughs) They were taken to the Ritz. They had shopping sprees in Harrods where they kept buying little bars of soap. They had this fetish for soap. (laughs) (laughs) It would make a fantastic film because you could have a scene of them all coming back to Trent Park with their little bars of soap because soap would be rare in Germany when they got back. Yeah. But, you know, you've got all this nonsense. You've got the fake aristocrat who befriends them in the house, uh, Lord Aberfeldy, <laughs> and he's named after a whiskey distillery. He's <laughs> completely fake. And they think he's real. And all this theatrical stuff is going on to gain the intelligence. And then in the basement of the house and in the other two sites, the kind of M room, the microphones were, sorry, the, the recording equipment, were the secret listeners German Jewish refugees primarily who'd fled Germany and Austria yeah. and made the most incredible contribution. So you've got this like upstairs, downstairs world. You can make a fabulous you film. Can see, you can see them all talking and then the camera just pans down through the floor to people with headsets and writing down what they're saying. It's so it's so yeah. cinematic. Yeah, and you've got just everyday life, a life of Riley really going on. You've got pro-Nazis arguing, anti-Nazis. You've got them, the Batman, the ceremonial valets, if mm. you like, refusing to polish the general's boots because they want wine at supper and they're only allowed beer. And it's like nonsense going on. <laughs> and then, of course, they're talking about battle plans and everything. And, and nobody's asked what happened to Hitler's top commanders after D-Day. Not only D-Day, of course, North Africa, Sicily, Italy, but especially after D-Day, whole swathes of commanders, a couple of field marshals. We had the whole lot of them at Kendrick's three secret sites, and we we honed them for intelligence by treating them as military gentlemen and befriending them with whiskey and, and wine. Fabulous story. And we got incredible intelligence from them. I can imagine that they'd you, you, you feed feed a man enough whiskey and he will start to boast and li- listen to well, that. And... It's not necessarily about getting them drunk or anything. It's just making them relaxed, making them feel you know, taking yeah. them up for posh lunches. That yes, of course they've got. They actually one of the comments in the intelligence files is that the German generals could hold their drink. And on one occasion, one of the American interrogators went to one of the generals who wouldn't speak, and he knew where one of the Panzer divisions were ahead of um, the Ardennes, and and before that, Operation Market Garden. And so he goes there and says to him, Hitler has decorated you with bravery, top, top medal. And he shows him the newspaper, and the general's not feeling like celebrating. The young interrogator, he's 24 years old, he says, here, I've got a bottle of brandy, let's come and celebrate. Well, of course, just before midnight, he's paralytic, the inter- interrogator on the floor, because he can't hold his drink. The generals <laughs> are still drinking. But just before midnight, that general starts to give up to his mates the location of this panzer division. Wow. And you think, oh, my gosh. But the moral, not the moral, but the ending of the story is that German general, and it's General Ramka, went to his grave a couple of decades later, never knowing that that medal was fake and that newspaper report was (laughs) fake. 
and it was all created on site. And I love that kind of thing. That's how we got intelligence out of them. Yeah, that that is great. That, that is great. Just intelligence genius that's overlooked by so many people, but actually runs through the core of pretty much everything that I've read within your books. But isn't that as isn't that as exciting as well? Is it more exciting than? Oh, than for James me, more Bond? so. Absolutely more so. You know, I mean, you know me. I'm I'm somewhat of an MI nine nut. For the people out there that don't know <laughs> MI nine, you know, they are the military intelligence organization that are tasked with helping people escape from prisoner of war camps. Yeah. So, so the gadgets that they are sending in, uh, they're thirty two fake charities, and I've I've seen photographs of some of the things, and uh, and that they send charity parcels in, in suitcases. Arguably, the greatest thing you ever need to an escape. I know it's wonderful and they were sending in blankets of course to keep the prisoners warm in the winter but actually what the Germans didn't realize it had special stuff in it such that if you dipped it in water with a special little bit of special chemical that was sent in smuggled in it would actually come up with a pattern of a uniform that they could just cut around and then sew together and you know they're faking uh, or they're making German uniforms of a general or a senior officer and just walking out of Colditz. Airy Neve just walked <laughs> out of Colditz, <laughs> dressed as a German officer. And he gets back. He's the first to escape from, from Colditz and get back. And they're just the sheer genius of this stuff. I yeah. think it's just magical. It's, it's, it's way better than actually, you know, parachuting into somewhere and, and making your gallant last stand with your Sten gun. This, this, this is where war, this and in factories is where war is won. Well, yeah, we should disagree, I think, because those SOE agents, as we've said, were incredibly brave. It's just that we need to move our focus to other aspects yes. and uh, of bravery yeah. and, and stuff. So I wouldn't want to undermine in any way. And I'm actually writing about some of them, um, but as a minor part of, uh, of my next book. But yeah, basically, we've got to to hold on to their legacy as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so your latest book, Spymaster, is all about Thomas Kendrick, as you describe the man who saved MI6. Now, without hurting your book sales, what can you tell us about him? Oh, you know, he has just a paragraph or two in the official MI6 history. And it's some of those characters which just have a tiny bit written about them. We should start being suspicious because they happen to be, like Kendrick, pivotal for intelligence history. And he had a career, born in, in Cape Town, South Africa, was British, cycling behind enemy lines at the end of the Boer War. And 
spying amongst the diamond mining community before the First World War. So he, he has nearly 40 years in the end working as a spy, a spy master. In the 20s and 30s, he's in Vienna. Ooh. Vienna has replaced Paris as the centre of espionage. Yeah, he's the British passport control officer. But of course, is he doing any visa passport work? No, <laughs> he's running spy networks. And that's his cover. And he's running spy networks right across Eastern Europe, into Czechoslovakia, Hungary, actually into Italy as well, so into parts of Western Europe and eventually into Nazi Germany. So he is mapping initially the communist threat, Soviet spies, but then the double threat with the Nazis as well. And, and they're coming in and out of Vienna. And he embarks on this amazing humanitarian effort in March 1938 and has yet to be fully recognised for saving a whole generation of Austria's Jews, up to 200 a day. Wow. So you've got this, yeah, very interesting spy who didn't have to do this rescue work, forging documents, getting people out. And his legacy is incredible, actually. And then he is betrayed by a double agent, thrown out of Austria. He's lucky to come out alive and goes on to head up that incredible bugging operation that I talked about shortly ago. Mm. But, you know, it, it makes me think, what is it about those spies and diplomats that risk their lives? to save people when they could have taken a different path. Mm. And he was one of those uh, incredible legacy. But to, to answer a question on how he might have saved MI6, which was incidentally was not my suggestion, nor the publishers, but an academic that reviewed the book to say, yes, we should publish this because it's not rubbish. Um, <laughs> actually, at the end of the report, <laughs> this academic said, oh, my goodness, this man saved MI6. And he did. And you could see how he saved MI6 by reading the book, as you know. Yeah, let's not go too far down that route. Yeah. No. So while we're on the subject of MI6, then, there's the often banded around impression of the early years of MI6 and the intelligence community that's along the lines that recruitment was broadly based around what university college you studied at and, and whether you knew the right people. Is there actually any, any truth to that at all? Well, I'm beginning to question that because we all accept these inherited truths without questioning mm. them. But if you look at the life of Kendrick, yes, he did go to a private school in South Africa, but it wasn't really sort of Eton kind of thing. And he didn't go to university. And if you look at the military intelligence officers who were with him in South yeah. Africa, who go on to help found MI6, Claude Dancy, for example, um, he's later in the First World War with with Stuart Mengis. These are military officers with a long-standing military intelligence career. Frank Foley, you've got Colonel Scotland, although Colonel Scotland was not MI6, but he was in intelligence. There are some critical people, men primarily, who don't appear to have gone through the traditional route. And so I think we should look at that again. When they talk about Kim Philby, for example, being that whole insider-outsider, that he felt an outsider. Was he an mm -hmm. insider? Was he an outsider? I think the recruitment by these senior MI6 officers, spy masters, if you like, from universities certainly did happen, but they, it wasn't only that. And in Spymaster, you can see with one of the reveals at the very end of the book, the Royal Connection, that actually the likes of Kendrick recruited from many layers of society. You know, you don't just go for one kind of 
Yeah. 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 You're not so, looking at one kind of person. Now, well, forgive a long question here, if you if you will. It's going to go back to my kind of fascination with MI nine, but it was one of the things that your MI nine book really highlighted well. I thought, but back when Kyle and I and the other member of our group, Rory, started looking at the malaria emergency, and we went out to set living history display up on it. We got all the kit and donned it all according to, you know, the government counterterrorism manuals and the army guides. And then the first two veterans that we met just took it all off us and basically put it on the floor and said, right, now we're going to redress you because this is how it was actually done. Forget what the government said. Now, (laughs) a note from your MI9 book that basically Jimmy, Jimmy Langley, who pretty much runs the show in it, died before most of it was declassified. And how much of, do you think our knowledge is actually being impacted by these sorts of first-hand accounts being unavailable when declassification happens? Because it's not like Jimmy Langley can go back and go, and now this is all the stuff that I'm allowed to tell you. Yeah, that's precisely it. <clears throat> the likes of Jimmy Langley, but also Airy Neve, but Foot and Langley when they wrote their book, and Neve the same, and the likes of Donald Darling, another key figure in MI9, didn't have access to the declassified files. Mm. And interestingly, we did notice, or Yale pointed out, my publisher Yale pointed out that my book, MI9, was the first history of MI9 for 40 years. Yes, yes. And I found that staggering, and I thought, what can I add to Foot and Langley to Neve? Because their books Mm. are awesome, so everything's been kind of drawn from that. But as we can now appreciate with the benefit of their work and excuse me, with the declassified files, we've now got a deeper understanding of MI9, that MI9 wasn't just about escape and evasion, but it was also, and I argue very strongly, the evidence is there, it's a military intelligence gathering, an intelligence gathering organisation on a par with MI5 and MI6. And it's also, and this was one of the big reveals, again, I nearly shouted in the archives, (laughs) yes, it was involved, its top secret section, known as Room 900, was involved in counter-espionage. So, oh my gosh, that's normally the kind of work of MI6. And who is signing the reports that are going back to London? This top secret section of MI9. Kim Philby. Ah, and he seems him. to keep popping up in all of my books. Yeah, him. <laughs> I mean, I had the shock of my life because it was enough to discover that MI9 had this very secret part that was doing counter espionage. And by that, of course, we mean tracking enemy spies, um, you know, dead letter boxes, all that kind of thing we think of mm. with spies. Bond stuff and the James Bond stuff. And then to discover, I sort of got, I was looking through this stuff thinking, fascinating. This is counter espionage. This is not what we think of with MI9. And then I glanced at the signature at the bottom and that that really sent me off. <laughs> so never be surprised by what you're going to discover. That's the thing, isn't it, about the research? I mean, who could ever have predicted? that the MI9 book, the discoveries during that research would have turned out as they did. Yeah, yeah. And it really, it really is an absolutely cracking read, even for an utter fanatic of MI9 like myself, because <laughs> because like you say, there there is that whole other angle to it that Foot and Langley, when they wrote the book, when they, when they wrote the original one, which I, I have a nice pride of place in this bookcase behind me, is none of that is in there because they're not allowed to talk about it. No, absolutely. And the other thing, going back to my rant earlier about SOE agents behind enemy lines, again, I was surprised to find MI9 in its top secret section, Room 900, sent 
agents behind enemy lines. They were not SOE. They were agents like SOE, but they would drop behind enemy lines for secret missions, usually intelligence-related missions. We still don't know what the vast majority of them have done mm. because it's still classified. We have their names in places. We have the old reference to some of their operations. But there's still so much secrecy surrounding their operations. But there were other brave agents, agents of MI9, women and men. And it would be wonderful if some of that could be declassified and we could begin to understand what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely would. Uh, but that then keeps things, you know, you can, you can be confident for the future that there's always going to be new information coming to light once these things do get declassified. And they will eventually. I have I have some faith in that. Yeah, yeah, that would be really good. So if there's anyone listening that's in charge of declassification of secret files, we'd like a few more, wouldn't we, Paul? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that that large centre for military intelligence that's uh, coming, you know, next year, we, that needs to be filled. And there's only one way to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> that aside, then, what, what, are your, what are your plans for the future now? What's, your, what's your, the next project coming up for you? Oh, am I allowed to talk about that? Are you allowed <laughs> to talk about whatever you want unless yes, it's classified? Well, it's not really classified, but I haven't been making it particularly public knowledge about what I'm working on. But I have been commissioned to write a book on women in intelligence. Mm. And it's not something I would have thought that I would ever have done. But um, I think because of the stuff that I've been doing over the last 20 years, I have stumbled across contributions of women that I think others wouldn't have found yeah and these women need a voice I mean of course there are lots of historians out there now looking at other aspects of women and intelligence of course there are but I think I uniquely placed in my particular area to pull out some very special stories so that's what what I'm going to be doing oh we'll look forward to that coming out then and of course we can of course get you back onto history rage then to uh to, to talk about what you find in there uh, or talk again about Nazis with apostrophes. That's entirely up to you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, yes. Helen. That has given so both of us a, a huge range of issues to read up about and learn more of. And uh, we just might have to get someone in later on to fight the corner of SOE as well. But if you would like to know more, then Helen's books are available through all good booksellers. I can personally recommend MI9 for anyone who's into POW escapes, but do please read all the others. Uh, and we are going to put links to them in the show notes. So, Helen, thank you very much for bringing your rage. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage. You can follow us individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send us your own history rages because we want to know what you wish people would just stop believing. And you can do that using the hashtag History Rage. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening. And from all of us here at History Rage, bye bye. Bye bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.